Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This episode contains stories about racism and stories with sexual content. This is a poster pasted into the logbook on November the 3rd, 1981. And it starts in all caps, DEFEND JUDITH WILLIAMS. If your employer told you that you were excellent at your job and then added that you were temperamentally unsuitable for it, you might well be surprised. If you were then asked to resign, you might well be very angry. Unlikely? Well, that's exactly what's happened to house parent Judith Williams. I really like how this entry ends, the last line saying, this is blatant discrimination and Judith is determined to fight her sacking, support her struggle, exclamation mark. The poster is about this woman, Judith Williams, who was respected as an openly lesbian woman, it says, in North Wales, where she lives and works, and she was working in a home for adolescents. But even though she was well-liked by other staff, she was sacked because she was a lesbian and she refuses to deny it in the language of the poster. So the poster is calling on people to campaign on Judith's behalf to say that this employment issue is very, very unfair and that she shouldn't be sacked because she's a lesbian. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today. In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. I'm Adam Smith. I'm Tash Walker. Now when I think about moments of history like this, where there was a clear legal issue to be fought, it makes me think, you know, what would I have done? And even today, am I doing enough? in the fight for rights for all sorts of people. It's a complicated question, am I doing enough and what would, have I, what would I have done then? Even today, in 2019, where people cannot be fired on the grounds of sexuality or gender identity, more than a third of LGBT people have hidden that they are LGBT plus at work for fear of discrimination. So there's something still left over, some hangover from these archaic attitudes uh, from the 70s and, and prior to that time. Uh, that are still impacting impacting people today. I looked up the Judith Williams case and I found that the I found that the employer said that it required its workers to be mature, stable adults who identify with the conventional adult model normally accepted by society. <laughs> Which I mean it just <laughs> sounds terrible and in 1981 that clearly didn't include lesbians like Judith. Episode 5, You Might Very Well Be Angry. Our theme this episode is rights and activism. And we've spoken to an early member of the Gay Liberation Front and some activists in the women's liberation movement. Someone made to quit his job for being gay, as well as someone who feared that she might lose custody of her son for being a lesbian. And of course, we've spoken to old switchboard volunteers who took the calls and heard these stories. 
And to give us the overall legal picture, first of all. I'm a Justin Gao, I'm a barrister in private practice. I'm uh, in my late 30s, which accounts as being 53 now. Uh, in the late 70s, gay men effectively had almost no rights that we would recognise that they have, that we have nowadays. Uh, there were no employment rights, there was no, uh, no inheritance rights for your partner's um, assets. You were criminally liable for um, actions that would not be prosecuted uh, with heterosexuals. You didn't have the protection of the law uh, in terms of your health, in terms of your job. You had no right to marry, you had no right to be in civil partnership. In all those circumstances, you were effectively a second-class citizen. Uh, that paved, of course, drove certain people very firmly into the closet. Certain organisations were not allowed to employ gay men, so the police, the military, the Foreign Office. The foreign Office's justification for not employing gay men was they'd be subject to blackmail, and when it was pointed out that if they made it lawful to employ them, they'd not be subject to blackmail, they couldn't quite follow the logic. And so that maintained, I think, until the 1990s or later. You're allowed to discriminate against gay men, so it was quite possible to say in any walk of life, we will not employ you because you're gay. So teachers, uh, lawyers, all those sorts of things would simply uh, have not be employed or would lose their jobs. As Justin says, one of the most glaring areas of inequality was in employment law. Just like with Judith Williams, who we heard about at the top of the episode. And we have a similar story, actually, from Tony Whitehead. I got the job at British Home Stores partly because a good family friend said, well, give it a go. I thought, well, OK, I'll give it a go. He told us about a first political action that he took in a very long line of political campaigning. And it started entirely by accident. CHE was the campaign for homosexual equality. So it, so it had a campaigning ethos. It, it, it was also, in many ways, a social group. So we'd, we'd sit and talk, we'd meet, whatever. And I got involved. And after being at Gay Sock in university, it, it was a natural step. And Southern Television, I think it was BBC Southern TV, I, I forget made a little film about uh, gay life on the South Coast, particularly around the group in Brighton. But there were these scenes of me where I, I was met or I met a boyfriend at the station in Brighton and we kiss and then we walk off um, hand in hand or arm in arm. And that attracted a lot of attention. It certainly attracted attention at British home stores. So I started on the Monday, the film was shown on the Friday evening, Saturday morning I was called into the manager's office. Was it you on the film? Because I don't think any names were given. Yes, yes, it was me, I'm gay and, you know, brilliant. I thought, did you like it? I said to him, well, clearly not. He said, well, we don't, we, we don't know what to do about this. This is, this is, this is, this is serious and... Uh, um, and so I was suspended on pay while they contacted their head offices and tried to get some idea what to do. Um, I told everyone in the, in the group in Brighton, 
Oh, I felt angry. <laughs> I felt, I felt angry. I don't feel cowed or apologetic at all. I really, I was just furious. <laughs> and thought, well, this is going to be interesting. So I contacted the local group. We contacted, I think it was then called the National Council for Civil Liberties. It seemed very fast to me, because at the same time as actually, you know, being really, really up to be public about this, I, I, I was then, as I always have been, sort of a fairly shy person. So it was an amazing <laughs> roller coaster of feelings. Quite quickly, we had demonstrations outside the store in Worthing, from which I had been suspended, and those demonstrations spread to the major stores in different parts of the country, and particularly Oxford Street. And that got a lot of media attention as well. I mean, it made a good story for TV, because you had, for example, men in drag going into the stores to, to protest loudly. And so when you think about it, it's from a distance, that probably made, a, made a, a good story for the evening news. And that's also how I came out to my parents. I hadn't lived at home, really, since I was 16. So I had to phone up my mother and say, Mum, tonight, uh, in about 10 minutes' time, it's going to be on the 6 o'clock news that I had been suspended from work. There was something of a national campaign. It was on the news. And, yes, I was gay. Because I got a kind of reaction many people have reported. Mum said, I always knew. I just wonder when you were going to get around to telling us. And my father was going, oh, dear. <laughs> One was upset and the other was not surprised. <laughs> Mothers seemed to know. At BHS, I was called into a meeting at the uh, headquarters on the Euston Road, I think not far from Baker Street. In a big boardroom, I forget how many people sitting there, but mostly men in suits, six, seven, something like that, and people taking notes. And I was uh, just grilled, interrogated, verbally beaten for what, quite a long time. What it seemed to hinge on was that uh, they were saying... British Home Stores is a family firm, therefore you being publicly identified in the media as gay could bring us into disrepute and, and you know, damage our family-friendly reputation. They went through my contract as a trainee manager very carefully and said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to move you. Now, every time you publicly identify yourself as gay, we're going to move you again. So I would be zigzagging across the country from one store to another. And we were talking about, you know, not just sort of around the South Coast. We were talking from between London and the North and Scotland and whatever. And uh, they just beat me down. Instead of insisting that they sack me, I, 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 ju I just was physically and mentally exhausted. This, this went on for hours, just hours. I I did the best that I could then under circumstances. I'm not I didn't beat myself up about it. You know, these days we would call what happened constructive dismissal, I think. When I was the centre of so much publicity about this 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 uh, discrimination at British home stores, I did hear um from other people about how they were worried about coming out at work or indeed how um 
they had themselves or knew of people who had lost their jobs because of being publicly identified as being gay. So, so this was an issue which affected many, many people. And I think a lot of people were not in the fortunate position I was in that I could get up and make a public fuss with a lot of support because my situation in Brighton and then coming up to London is very different from someone in many, many other parts of the country. At the same time, sex, especially between men, was heavily policed, as we heard in episode four. Right, with such complex laws around sex in public, and of course the age of consent between two men was high at 21 before being later lowered to 18 and then lowered again to 16 in 2001 uh, to fall in line with the age of consent between a man and a woman. So this is a logbook entry from July the 2nd, 1978, and the volunteer is called Paul. Call from a 16-year-old guy. Parents have found out he's been getting screwed by a 40-year-old man and are informing police. He was more worried about the man than himself. He's been screwed about four times, three of them by the man, and intends to say he's very promiscuous and completely gay, hoping to get his friend off the hook. Does anyone know if this is likely to do any good, and if not, what will? Also, can it be proven by medical exam how many times he's been fucked, etc.? Can he, at 16, be made to undergo medical exams against his will? Any ideas at all? The caller is ringing me on Monday as his parents came home, and he had to ring off quick. And there are two replies in this logbook entry from two different volunteers. The first one says, When these situations arise, the parents rarely understand that not only is the senior party liable to be prosecuted, but also the kid. And the second reply from a different volunteer, in different handwriting, says he can be made to undergo a medical exam, which can detect he has been fucked, although not how many times. He should persuade his friend to contact solicitor, ASAP. When I started out uh, as a barrister back in the 1980s, gay sex was only legal between consenting adults then aged over 21 in private. It was uh, slightly embarrassing to have to say, bread and butter for baby barristers in the criminal world still to be able to pick up the brief to defend and or prosecute people for offences of gross indecency and also absurd by certainly by current standards, absurd pornography offences. And indeed, uh, entrapment, of course. There were still um, police, young, classically young male police recruits who were considered to be pretty enough, were shoved into tight shorts and T-shirts and sent into public lavatories and snaffled a few sad old men who got their willies out. My name is Damien Lochrane. I was a barrister until 2009 when I became a circuit judge sitting in the family courts in Essex. The, the impression that we always had, it's possibly unfair, but the impression that we always had was that uh, the, the police, I think, still are, then were, interested in the statistics of, of recording and prosecuting successfully crime. The reality was that uh, the way in which those offences were prosecuted meant they were easy statistical successes for the police. First of all, of course, there was a significant public embarrassment involved in any kind of publicity those surrounding those kinds of offences, and so the incentive for anybody who was uh, entrapped into that kind of an offence 
or encouraged perhaps into that kind of an offence, uh, was uh, to get it over and done with as quickly as possible. Uh, and uh, that involved a plea of guilty or a caution of some kind, and that was a, a tick statistic for the police, of course. That was a nice plus for their statistics. Uh, and it involved very little paperwork and very little um, involvement in serious prosecution, etc. Whereas the laws around sex largely affected men, the laws around child custody affected lots of women. Femi tells us more. One of the big risks for women when they came out as lesbians was that they might lose custody of their children. So in the late 60s, early 70s, this had been pivotal for lesbians and there were groups called like the Lesbian Mothers Group who worked with women to help them try and keep custody of their children. It was very, very important that women left, say, the family home with their children before, if at all possible, their partner found out they were a lesbian because if they did then make representations to court, that would be seen as reason enough. Their lesbianism would be reason enough for them to lose their children. Log entry, September the 24th, 1975. And the volunteer was uh, Alaric. A woman rang to ask if I knew anything about the case of a woman who was living with another woman who was refused custody of her child, in spite of medical evidence that the child would have been better off with mother. This was for a case on now, very similar, which she wanted the info to help her with. Said, ring back Angela, just in case you know anything about this case or any other. Also sent her to Sappho. P.S. Just realised I didn't ask which side she was on. Probably the mother's. (laughs) There was one year when Women's Own put the switchboard phone number in its diary and suddenly we started getting calls from married lesbians who were literally sneaking downstairs at one or two in the morning to phone us while the family was asleep and they knew that they were lesbians. Quite often they were in love with the woman next door or something like that or their best friend or whatever and they had agreements that they would not tell their husband or leave their husband until the kids had grown up and left. Um, Because lesbians never got custody of their kids in those days, for starters. Either the kids would go to the father, or if he didn't want them, they'd actually go into state care, because lesbians were thought to corrupt their kids. Gay men who left their wives wouldn't get any form of access either. So they were literally just waiting to be able to come out until it would not destroy the family. I ended up going to court and having to battle for custody for my son, which was very difficult. And I had to go to the Strand in London, which was daunting. But it was something that I did very much on my own. My name is Elaine. Even though my brother was gay and lots of my friends were gay, his friends, coming out myself was such a different journey. I think that's mostly because I had a son. When I was going through the breakup with my husband, I felt that because it was something that in the early 80s was almost out of certainly my experience about what would happen to me, how would I keep my son. Fortunately for me, I was a low earner at the time, so I had legal aid. So I got probably the best brief in London on legal aid, she fought for me to keep custody of my son. It was a very difficult time, I have to say. If any time I've had a difficulty in my life, I just think, look what happened there. And I actually went 
to the court on my own because I wanted to follow that journey and it was quite daunting when I see it on television now, you know, that huge great door. It worked out okay. I think the most difficult thing for me was having to stand up and to own who I was in a very public way and the fact that the prize at the end of my bravery, I guess, was that I would hopefully keep my son because leaving a man for a woman in those days I think was seen as quite shocking and um, I was very fortunate that I did actually get joint custody of my son. So many people coming up against so many battles coupled with the sweeping changes in the 70s more and more groups were beginning to emerge and organise. Yeah, I'm joining the likes of the Campaign for Homosexual Equality and the Gay Liberation Front, whose UK branch was formed in 1970, inspired by the movement um, in the US, which erupted after seeing the effects of the Stonewall Uprising in New York City. And I spoke to Ted, who was there on the first march organised by the Gay Liberation Front in London. The fact that the majority of lesbian and gay people were forced into the closet was a fundamental issue that needed to be challenged by GLF if we were going to progress in any way. Now, as I understand it, the very, very first public demonstration in central London by lesbian and gays was the youth group of the GLF meeting together and organising a march through central London from Hyde Park along Oxford Street down the Haymarket to Trafalgar Square in protest against the unfair age of consent laws. At the time, you if you were a, a gay male, you had to be over 21 and you were only allowed uh, sexual congress with another adult over the age of 21 and it had to be in private. Because it was um, initiated by young people from the Gay Liberation Front, it was the main theme was always for gay people to be out, right? Um, to show that we had pride in ourselves and to confront straight people with the reality as opposed to the stereotypes that they were aware of. So in the early 70s, a book was published called Everything You Want to Know About Sex. And it was published by David Rubin, whose prejudices were so obvious that they couldn't be hidden in his very unscientific and misleading information about sexuality generally. But his targeting of the lesbian and gay community was clearly very hostile and full of inaccuracies. Um, Statements such as, gay men can't have any lengthy relationships, and if they do, they're just nothing but bitterness and backbiting and insults. And inaccuracies about our sexual behaviour, such as saying that most gay Uh, sexual activity involves shoving cucumbers up our anuses, which is obviously just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, So Gay Liberations responded to this by creating uh, a massive papier-mâché cucumber, which we painted green, 
and we took it along to the offices of Pan Books uh, in December 1971, and uh, we had the editor of the gay, the first gay newspaper, Dennis Lemon, uh, bending down in front of this cucumber, and we waved it around his bottom to show our offence at the way that our sexuality was being portrayed. Although the GLF had a massive impact at that time, it dissolved in the mid-70s, and some members went on to form a little volunteer-led organisation called Gay Switchboard. That's amazing. You can only imagine like what it felt like in the air, this, this, this big moment of, of change in organisations coming out of what was then the, the Gay Liberation Front, like Switchboard. The, this electricity of change in the air and led to all these meetings and discussions and groups. And that's what the next few logbooks show. This is a logbook entry from November the 19th, 1975. Speakers and Film Wanted, Surrey University Gay Society are having a discussion meeting on the political aspects of gayness on December the 3rd. They want to find speakers and, if possible, a film. Please contact Sylvia with suggestions. This is a logbook entry from March 18th, 1976. Meeting Friday and Saturday. Caller rang regarding an entry in this week's timeout, which reads as follows. Conference on politics of sex. Papers on abortion, rape, gays, pornography, prostitution, and the age of consent. 11 to 6, both days, at Central London Poly School of Communication. Fee one pound per day. George Malley playing Friday evening. There was nothing about the rights of transgender people on that conference agenda. Yeah, and Chrissy, who told us about her own transgender journey, remembers how and why it was not considered in the late 70s. People's idea of, of their rights as trans people in the 1970s, quite simply, they didn't have any. And I, I suspect it wouldn't be a question many people would ask, because I think the known assumption was, the known and correct assumption was that they didn't have any rights. In the 70s, I don't think there was a distinctive uh, group or campaign for, for uh, gender-based rights. I mean, transgender-based rights. Lots of, lots of feminist um, um, campaigning, feminist campaigning, some feminist campaigning has always been trans-inclusive. It's, it's, not, it's just not true to say that second-wave feminism was trans-exclusive. Uh, trans-exclusive, but, um, uh, but it's always been a, a contested area of, of inclusion or exclusion and obviously continues to be. So Tash, in late 1978, of course, gay activists in London would have been preparing for what was going to be the 10th anniversary of the Stonewall uprisings in New York by creating a special sticker for people to stick on them and wear when they went out. But, um, as we heard in episode two, there were often risks involved in wearing something, such as a badge, that outed you. Um, so this Stonewall sticker was pretty discreet, simply saying Stonewall and 69. And so we found the logbook entries where there was a bit of a dispute between volunteers about this because it looks like not everyone approved or even understood. This is a logbook entry from December 31st, 1978, New Year's Eve. Can anyone tell me who, apart from middle-aged American gay libbers, 
is going to understand the significance or relevance of the Stonewall stickers? Why are they so vague? So this is a logbook entry from January 4th, 1979. RE Stonewall stickers. Yes, they are deliberately vague. This helps with their appeal to people in pubs or clubs who wouldn't wear a gay badge. It makes people wonder what the hell it's all about. Some people have said that they quite like the 69 bit as well. As well as this, a series of stickers and posters will also be appearing between now and June, carrying the same basic design and lettering, but with progressive, in inverted commas, gay content. Those of you who've worn them may have noticed people asking you what Stonewall is about. The idea is you explain it and they understand. The March for Freedom that lesbian and gay activists were on, of course, merged with similar long walks around women's liberation and racial justice. Evidence of which can be found in the pages of the logbooks. This is a logbook entry from May 22nd, 1978. It starts in bold caps, very important. As their election hopes have been squashed by the anti-Nazi league, the Nazi types are turning increasingly to open violence to achieve their aims, with the attacks and murder of Asian people in the East End, so we expect the worst. I was feeling enthusiastic about a new sense of gay pride and solidarity, which I had encountered at the events I have been to this week, but the bomb attack, was it sent in Gay Pride Week by coincidence? And the near riot and police assault on two women in the Marlborough last night just show how vulnerable our gay movement is and how many enemies we have. SC has been to see the injured manager in hospital and reports that his facial injuries are not as serious as was feared, but his hands are badly burned and he may have to have skin grafts. This is a logbook entry from September the 9th, 1975. Meeting at Nucleus, 11th of September. If Gay Switchboard is interested, can go along. Ring for correct time, I forgot to get it. Also, they are organising a demo against the National Front and want to help to get gay contingent. NF AGM at Chelsea Old Town Hall, Kings Road. Saturday, October 11, 10am to 6pm. So, log entry, November the 1st, 1981, volunteer P. I thought Gay Switchboard was a non-political organisation. Why is the Gay Switchboard banner on the CND march? Surely gays should be working in and marching with existing peace groups rather than being separatist. Comments added by Gus. Gay Switchboard is non-political? Is this the dictionary definition of a non-secretaire? At the time I was on Switchboard, I had already been involved in the in the women's liberation movement, as we called it at that time. In fact, I had been involved with that first, um, and that was my first love and my first source of support as a lesbian. Um, the two movements at that time, they didn't feel to me that, as though there was very much overlap. So... Um, the gay, the gay agenda, and we called it the gay agenda. We had to work quite hard a bit later to make it the lesbian and gay agenda. It seemed to be quite different. So with gay men, we're concerned about age of consent. We're concerned, concerned about pretty policemen and opportuning, importuning, sorry. Um, and with lesbians, we're concerned about lesbian custody um, and uh, things about lesbian sexual health. You know, so there were different agendas. 
And within Switchboard itself, political personal tensions rose, mainly around the male volunteers, who uh, didn't seem to recognise the extra struggles of the women, which would later cause some serious ruptures in Switchboard. Tash, you've got a logbook entry about this. Yeah, there's this entry which is pasted into the logbook, July 8th, 1976. It's typed up um, and it's entitled Sexism in Bold and Underlined. It's initially about a poster for the lesbian group, which was removed and replaced by a poster uh, publicising a switchboard benefit. But it, it goes on to say, whoever removed the lesbian group notice did not pause to question his right to do so, nor the priorities which he affected in so doing. And then a bit later on, it states, this too, when for most of us, the women's group is the only group which gives us a firmer sense of commitment to switchboard. To have to use the space marked personal trivialises our purpose and belittles our aims. Why don't we have more women on switchboard? Why is sexism always discovered elsewhere, never at switchboard? Why don't we have more women on switchboard? So hearing all these stories makes you realise that Britain's come a long way in legal rights, like equal employment law, protections from discrimination, even marriage, which of course people in 1974, when Switchboard started, could never have imagined that there would be such a thing. It never comes up in the logbooks as something people write about, the idea of marrying your same-sex partner. And it makes me think about how far we've come just thinking to do with custody rights, the idea of having to plan your coming out around not only leaving someone, not only your career, the fear of losing your job, but also your children and your whole life becoming completely ripped apart. Does that still come up when calls today? You know, we get people contacting Switchboard whose children have just left for university or their opposite sex partner has died and they're still waiting for those key markers in their lifetime in order to look at their sexuality or gender identity. Yeah, I don't, I, there's so many things jump out to me um, from what we've heard. I love Ted's story about the cucumbers and the way that you have to find a sense of humour sometimes in activism in order to push through and keep at it, I suppose. But activists also need a little downtime. So in the pub... After a recent GLF meeting, Dan and John, representing two generations of activists, told us why the GLF is preparing to return. There's a reason, obviously, why it's called Gay Liberation Front rather than Gay Assimilation Front, because it's looking at much more interconnected, deep-seated manifestation of freedom for everyone, because they're seeing that the fight against racism is the same fight against sexism, the same fight against homophobia, and looking at the root causes which multiply them all. There's this re well, there has been a really interesting conversation between the people who started the modern pride movement, which was all obviously born out of the Stonewall uprisings, and the corporation who've co-opted and depoliticized and pacified it, the Pride in London Corporation, which have obviously just turned it into a commercial, militaristic nightmare. We've achieved um, legal change, uh, but we've lost the social democratic surroundings that made gay liberation possible as a lifestyle. A whole different movement is evolving. There is a, a new inspiration amongst the younger generation who are making links 
with people back then and are um, planning to take a revolutionary movement forward. These legends have been at it for nearly 50 years. So the 50th anniversary of Gay Liberation Fund, the main conversation out of tonight was um, one event, a major event at the beginning to kind of set the tone and to build connections. You know, obviously we've seen hate crime double in the last 10 years with less prosecutions. So really about reclaiming space, being proud of who we are, building a, like a strong united front. I'm, I'm really excited about an, a, a, like a series of actions which look at the common um, areas which oppress us, like the, the breakdown of the health service, so building a queer response to that, or the thing around the Home Office, around their refusal to quash the convictions of gay men who were convicted pre-partial decriminalisation, because I would have been, well, this is not the sole reason I'm doing it, but like, I reflect on it, I would have been in prison forever. And there's obviously examples of people who've got convictions for like being found in the toilet once. You can tell in the logbooks of Switchboard that there are these tensions between gay men and lesbians, and no one's really talking about bisexual people or transgender people. There are sometimes other words used for some of those, but uh, there are all these different categories of people even within the categories. You know, in lesbians there's butch versus femme, that kind of thing, and the categories are just changing all the time. That's what we're going to look at in episode six, which is going to be about definitions. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names. The Logbooks is produced by Giovanni Dave, Adam Smith and Tash Walker, in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. If you think other people would like the logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute. The folks at ACAST. Gareth Mitchell at Imperial College London. The staff and volunteers at Switchboard. And all the contributors who shared their stories. 45 years on, Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630. Email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.